when I was in high school, I recall being sick, not being able to play, and when I got better, getting back in the huddle as a quarterback was also super re-energizing. And then as I've now had a family, and we were growing up, uh, pretty much all our kids say this, and I certainly say me and Julie say this often, is when we're away on vacation and we come back, there is no place like home or your bed. (laughs) But as a pastor, there is something special and unique about getting back in his pulpit. And friends, I am overjoyed and I am energized and I am delighted to shepherd you through the preaching of God's word this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, please turn in your Bibles to the very end of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16. You can find that on page 498 in the chair Bibles provided. On April 30th of this year, we concluded our multi-year study in the gospel of Mark As many of you may recall, we stopped at the shorter ending of Mark's gospel, Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. And if you want to learn why we stopped at verse 8, didn't continue on, you can re-listen to that sermon on the church podcast. So in light of our sermon topic this morning, the Great Commission and CCBC, it'll be more of a standalone sermon than topical. Uh, And we're going to be reviewing first, though, Mark 16, verses 1 to 8, before moving on to our main sermon text today. Please follow with me, Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Of course, we know that from Mark 16, the way it ends, it has the same general themes found at the end of Mark's gospel that all the other gospels have as well, Matthew, Luke, and John. They all conclude their gospels with the scenes surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the eyewitness accounts these eyewitnesses to this fear-gripping, faith-igniting, salvation-bringing, and history-changing event. But one essential and very important component that Mark's short ending lacked, but the other gospel writers clearly contained, was the final marching orders Jesus would give his 11 disciples, those whom he would also name apostles. Apostles meant those who were authorized uniquely by Jesus and sent out to represent him and to proclaim his gospel of the kingdom and to establish his church on the earth. But the question we must all come to grips with this morning is this. How did the resurrection of Jesus Christ inform 
these disciples what their mission was to be once Jesus ascended back into heaven. In other words, how did the resurrection have any boring, have any effect, have any priority-shaping influence on what the rest of their lives was to be most focused upon? And to that same end, how does the mission that Jesus commanded the 11 disciples to carry out instruct Christians today of how we should be spending our time spending the bulk of our priorities with the lives he has given us. Members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, how does the passage we'll read together this morning impact how we evaluate the missional faithfulness or the missional failings of any local church, including our own? So if you have your Bibles already open, turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 487. And if you don't have a Bible, you can read it home. You can take that as a gift from our church to you, Matthew chapter 28. I want you to drop down to the very last pericope or paragraph of Matthew 28 as the book concludes. Our primary text this morning we're going to be staring long and hard at is Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Within 40 days after the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, Jesus had continued to give commands and instructions to his disciples, specifically to his apostles. And you can read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that reiterates those 40 days after he got up from the dead, he continued teaching these apostles. But before Jesus would suffer on the cross and die, and before he would utter these words from Matthew chapter 28, he had previously foretold to the disciples that he would face the hands of evil men. He told them that he would suffer and that he would die. But he also said that he would rise again. And he told them specifically, not only would I rise again, but I want you to meet me in a specific place. You may recall this from the multiple repetitions of Jesus' words when we studied Mark's gospel. And those same prophetic words uttered by Jesus are in Matthew's gospel as well. So if you want to look back at Matthew 26, verses 31 to 32, you can see this. We see Jesus speaking to the disciples in the upper room prior to his betrayal. Matthew 26, starting in verse 31. You will all fall away because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee, as you may recall, was the primary ministry headquarters for the bulk of Jesus's ministry. It's where he called those earliest disciples that were fishermen to leave their daddy and their future family business and follow me. And Jesus said, I would teach you to become fishers of men. Galilee is where it all began back in the day, we might say. And here, after Jesus would claim that he would rise from the dead, he had instructed them to meet them back where it all began back in the day, Galilee. Now, the question before us this morning, friends, is not did Jesus rise from the dead? We've already studied about that in Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. He did. He did get up from the dead. But the question before us this morning in light of our passage is this. Did the disciples believe that he would, in fact, rise from the dead? And would they meet him in Galilee just as he instructed them to do so? And when they got there, what would Jesus tell them in Galilee the place where it all began. Well, in Jesus' kindness and patience with them, as Jesus shows us unrelentless patience time and time again, our Lord sent them a friendly reminder. A friendly reminder both through the angel at the tomb to the women, but also through the women, the Lord would convey to the disciples that Jesus said, go to Galilee. And notice again, look at Matthew 28, go back down. Jesus knows they're going to be a little bit skittish, wondering if he's really going to get up from the dead. Look at Matthew 28, verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. This is the angel, right? There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The Lord not only told them on the night of his betrayal, the Lord through the angel told the ladies, the women at the tomb, and then Jesus bodily, visually, audibly, right in front of the women, said, go and tell the disciples what I told them just several days earlier, meet me in Galilee. Now look with me at the first verse of our passage this morning in Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, this verse looks a little obscure, right? Most of us probably skip straight to verses 18 to 20, but I think if we do that, uh, really that just kind of shows us that we can often glance over some significant things. In one sense, on the surface, verse 16 clearly shows us that Jesus is a man of integrity, right? He's a man of his word. When we study the four Gospels, we discover again and again that Jesus always says what he means and always means what he says. Jesus never mixed his words. 
He didn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. Jesus' words and actions were never a contradiction to themselves. Friends, Jesus' life was a living sermon. The word who became flesh lived what he spoke and taught, and he spoke and taught the very words of God, which can always be trusted. Which means that verse 16 most clearly shows us that whatever Jesus promises us he will do, we can trust him. Precisely because he will always keep his word. Every time. He met the disciples back in Galilee, just as he said he would. And by the grace and providence of God, these disciples eventually make it to Galilee, just as Jesus had directed them. That word in the English Standard Version, directed, can also be translated designated. The word meant to appoint, to determine, to set in order a task or purpose for someone else to do something. In other words, Jesus gave his disciples an order, a designation to fulfill. He gave them directions in the past that would be fulfilled at the appointed and appropriate time in the future. And friends, that time had come to pass. Brothers and sisters, obedience to Jesus, even in the small things, matters a lot to Jesus. Obedience to Jesus in the small things, is still a big deal to Jesus. Now, let's just take a step back for a minute. If you read Matthew's gospel, and I would encourage each one of you, if you get fired up and excited about the last, you know, five or so verses of Matthew, start over in Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 1, and read through the whole gospel of Matthew to see these things come to light from the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus has taught some really big things, we might say, from the very beginning. So let me remind us, he taught these young men for years, things like parables that have eternal significance on our souls about the kingdom of God. Matthew 13 is filled with them. Jesus expounded in the Sermon on the Mount the true meaning and application of the law of Moses in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And Jesus certainly warned them of the dangers of false teaching and false teachers and the spiritually dangerous influences of the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the Herodians, the Sadducees, uh, Matthew 16, Matthew 28, or 23, and other places. But if you look at throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus also taught his disciples to do some small things as well. Small things in our eyes. Small things in maybe the disciples' eyes. But what we'll find out is they were a big deal to Jesus. Commands that seem small at first, like instructing his disciples to have the hungry and hangry crowds sit down on the grass. Just as Jesus was about to perform the feeding of the thousands with five loaves of bread and two fish, Matthew 14, 19. Commands that seem small at first telling the disciples to get into the boat and that he'll just, you know, meet them out yonder on the other side of the lake. And this was just prior to Peter walking supernaturally on the water as he looked to Jesus, who himself was walking on the water, Matthew 14, 22. Commands that seemed small at first, such as Jesus telling Peter to go to the sea and 
cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up out of there. And upon doing so, opening its mouth, you would supernaturally see a coin, a shekel, inside a fish's mouth. Friends, the basic point we should see here in verse 16 is that what at first appears like a small, insignificant, flyover verse, ordinary, odd, potentially not all that significant line of instructions, I'll meet you in Galilee. After I rise from the dead, I'll, I'll meet you where it all began. I'll meet you on a mountain in Galilee. Y'all remember that mountain, right? I'll, just, I'll meet you there. In one ear, out the other. That's why it's repeated multiple times. Beloved, if Jesus gives us a command, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem to us, and if he attaches on there a promise to us that he will be with us, that he will bless that act of obedience in whatever way he sees fit, friends, then whatever commands Jesus gives us is a big deal to Jesus. There are no small things in the commands of Jesus. We don't serve a small Savior. So whatever command he gives us is a big deal to our Savior's heart. If it's a big deal to Jesus, friends, it should become a big deal for us. Brothers and sisters, we should read and study God's word carefully and thoroughly and obey everything Jesus has taught us. Superficial Bible reading makes superficial Christians. Superficial Bible reading makes superficial Christians. Superficial Bible reading with no to little, little to no regard to obey it, friends, is only going to hurt us spiritually in the end. Yet even those of us who might say, well, no, no, I love Bible study. I can study for hours on end. I can meditate. I can memorize. I can do it with the best of them. I love studying God's word. I have theology books. I have Christian living books. I have word study books. I have logos on my computer. I love it. Friends, don't be deceived. Knowledge is good, but knowledge alone can puff up. And knowledge that is not applied is the mark of a fool. James says in James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Friends, we can all tend to compartmentalize our Christian life, right? We can sometimes think, well, yeah, Jesus cares about these really big things in my life, but not, not those small things. But friends, following Jesus requires we listen to everything he's ever taught us, which requires us slowing down, lingering, paying close attention, staring, meditating, musing, on God's word, watch this, long enough that it affects you. You stare at it long enough that it grips you. You stare at it long enough and you ask God for his illumination to amaze you at these wondrous things he has in his law. Friends, whatever Jesus taught his disciples, which includes us, it's a big deal to Jesus, then it's a big deal to us. 
But Jesus told them he would meet them in Galilee. And eventually he met them in Galilee after being resurrected, just as he had directed them. But when they saw Jesus in Galilee, how did they respond to Jesus? Jesus appeared to his 11 disciples. Remember, it was 12, but minus Judas, he hung himself out of despair, knowing that he had betrayed an innocent man. But it was not only the 11 disciples, it was over 500 believers. That's almost five times the size of this congregation had seen, touched, heard, embraced the risen, bodily, audibly King Jesus. How did the crowds who believed in him and who said they trusted him, how did they respond to him when they saw him? Look with me at verse 17. And when they saw him, that's very important, by the way. He didn't just say when they heard him. They saw him with their own eyeballs. They worshiped him, but some doubted. The word worship here is the Greek word proskeneo. The word can mean in one sense to kneel down out of reverence to someone important, like a commanding officer, a ruling official, or someone you show great reverence to that has done something heroic or immensely kind for you. Perhaps reverence you would show someone like a king, a very powerful king who's been very generous to you. And the word can also mean to fall down on your face, to prostrate to the ground, bowing down to a person, a spirit, or an object, and attributing praise and adoration and glory to, like someone who is deity, like we would to God. Friends, this same word is used of Satan's third temptation in the wilderness towards Jesus. As Satan attempted to allure Jesus with comfort, ease, self-preservation, and immediate gratification, pleasure, and earthly glory, he threw out the bait when our Lord was hungry and tired and being tempted with exchanging worship for the one true God to worshiping Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light, the devil, the evil one, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. We read in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship, proskuneo me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship proskuneo, the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But amongst those who worshiped Jesus on that mountain, beholding the resurrected Lord with their own eyes, were also those among them who were unsure about Jesus. Did you catch what verse 17 reads? But some doubted. By the way, if anyone ever tells you from an agnostic, atheistic perspective or any kind of so-called liberal Christianity or your religion 101 at a secular university, they're going to point out errors and 
point out seemingly contradictions and point out, well, this was all just big, one big myth. The earliest disciples, they just tried to deceive a bunch of ignorant people who haven't been enlightened yet about their so-called Messiah. Well, that's interesting. If a Christian was trying to pull a quick one over people, why would, why would Matthew honestly admit there's tens, maybe even hundreds who doubted this Messiah? It's an apologetic to show you the authenticity and the honesty of the gospel writers that even some of Christ's closest disciples doubted him. Again, rant over. The word doubted here can mean to waver. It literally means to be divided in mind. It has the connotation not of a closed-fisted and settled unbelief towards Jesus, but rather a shaky, weak, and hesitant faith towards Jesus. It's the picture of someone wavering between two or more opinions about something. It's almost like someone jumping over a line back and forth, again and again, just uncertain on which side of the line they're going to stand on. It's like someone standing at the end of a diving board in a pool, not sure whether they have the courage to jump in or just simply back out and walk back down the ladder. It's flip-flopping. In your mind. It's like a vacillating fan. I believe. I'm unsure. I believe. But I'm weighed down with fear and anxiety and tortuous, second guessing thoughts about Jesus. In essence, some were experiencing a tug of war match inside their minds, they were internally conflicted. They were spiritually, mentally, and emotionally tied up in knots with doubts about Jesus. Is this this really him? What about all those rumors going around that someone stole his body? Unless I touch his side and see his hands, I could never believe. And what would Jesus think of me if he knew I doubted him? You ever been there before? You're having doubts about the Lord's care and protection and leading in your life? You can't deny that he exists, but you have even more anxiety thinking that he'll just throw you away, give up on you because you have doubts about him. Friends, this word doubt does not mean there were atheists and agnostics present trying to debate and argue the resurrection. We know from the Gospel of Matthew earlier, in Matthew 13, 58, Jesus' own hometown rejected him, it says, and he did not do many whiny works there because of their unbelief. That's a very different word than the word used for doubt here in Matthew 28. So a better understanding of these doubters were among the many eyewitnesses to his resurrection. It had to do more with those of little faith rather than no faith. And interestingly, we see this seemingly paradox of how can you be a disciple of Jesus and have little faith and even worship him? How can these things be? Well, hold your place in Matthew 28. I want you to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14.
It's always an encouragement to hear pages of Bibles turning, not against technology, but there is something fresh to know that the people that are sitting under the word are eager to receive what Christ has for us. So I just want to encourage you. It's a huge blessing to my heart to hear those pages. Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on, come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's the same Greek word for doubt used in Matthew 28, 17. Jesus is looking to Peter and saying, Peter, why did you waver? Why did you have divided thoughts about me? Peter, why did you hesitate to trust me? Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped, proskuneo him. Truly, you are the Son of God. Turn back to Matthew 28. Peter here walked on water only as he looked to Jesus who could enable him to do so. But when Peter stared at the waves and the storm at hand, he lost sight of his trustworthy master. He lost sight of his strong and mighty Messiah. He lost sight of his faithful, committed, and best friend. He went from faith to doubt. Listen, not because the circumstances were too difficult for Jesus, but because he took his eyes off of Jesus and put them on the wind. He put them on himself. He put them on the water and not on the one who could walk on the water. Friends, that's where all doubt towards God stems from. Sooner or later, you and I take our eyes off Jesus in all his glory and put them on something or someone else. Peter doubted. And when Jesus showed that creation bows to his will and submits to his bidding, he calms the wind, he calms the waves, and all those in the boat, including doubting Peter, worshipped him. Oh, friends, they worshipped him as the doubt revealer, the peace giver, the storm calming, water walking, life-saving Savior. He is. Friends, they gave reverence to him because they saw Jesus not as a five-letter word in an English Bible that you just stare at and gloss over. They looked at Jesus more than a good man, more than a good teacher. They saw him as the Son of God.
Oh, but make no mistake, friends. They worshipped him in that boat that day. You know why they worshipped him? Because he saved their lives. They worshipped him because he's deity. The Jesus that was standing in that boat is the same Jesus that would later stand on that mountain in Galilee. Jesus is God in human flesh. Oh, brothers and sisters, true worship is not our emotional response to our musical preferences. True worship is not our emotional response to comfortable circumstances going our way. True worship is the heart's response to the goodness and power and glory of God to save us, to save coveting, envious, jealous, evil, dirty, selfish, prideful, doubting, hypocritical, worldly, adulterous, lustful, hateful, bitter, gossiping, hard-hearted, callous, idolatrous sinners like us. Churches that lack true worship are churches who have a too small view of Jesus. I sometimes imagine one day being a church consultant. I don't think I'd have a job for more than about a month. You know, ask a bunch of questions, read all your bylaws, find out who's leading the thing, hear a few sermons. But somewhere along the way, if you walk into a really sick and unhealthy church, what you're going to find out is people get real excited about traditions and programs and not very excited about Jesus. They get excited about instruments and lighting and lasers and websites and podcasts, but they don't get really excited about Jesus. Friends, if that ever happens to us, may God quicken us in our spirit. May he reprove us when we go off the narrow way and he call us back to our first love. The only thing that makes us distinct, the only thing that makes us persuasive or compelling is not us, but Christ. And what we need in worship is not fog machines. What we need is the filling of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Pray that we understand the inspired text and pray that God by his spirit would anoint with power from on high the preaching of his word. This is a valley of dead bones apart from the mercy of God. Every time it's going out to a cemetery and asking God to raise dead men to life. It is supernatural. It's been happening in this room. You walk in here, bored is all get out. Mind is distracted. You cannot understand why you're there, but you're here. And it's something happens in the middle of preaching, singing, and praying. It's like the spirit takes the floodlight and say, stop looking at yourself. Start staring at Jesus. That is true worship. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Peter only worshiped when he realized who saved him. There was only one in that boat that saved him, and it wasn't his buddies. It was Jesus. Friends, if you're here this morning and you'd honestly say something like this, Pastor, I'm spiritually dull. I'm struggling. What's your advice, Pastor? Look to Jesus. 
Look to Jesus. Cry out to him like Peter did. I'm drowning, Lord. My doubts are overwhelming me. Cry out to him. It may feel like the water is seeping over your mouth, but he will grab you at just the right moment. Our grip might be slipping from him, but his grip is firm on us. That is salvation. Study, meditate, marinate, stare, watch, carefully get up early in the morning, stay up later at night, staring at this Jesus for the rest of your days. Friends, Jesus said, I am the true vine. Friends, this was a rich meditation for me, sitting there on Jacksonville Beach at about 6 a.m., seagulls all around me, and I'm thinking of John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. All right, got it, Jesus. And then he says, and you are the branches. That's not flattering. I mean, I got a tan while I was here, Jesus. Branches? Branches are things that snap off in the middle of a barling storm. Branches? Jesus says, if we abide in him as the true vine and he in us, we will bear what? Much fruit. But think about the converse opposite. If we're looking to something or someone else to abide in and not Jesus, we will always be disappointed and we will always lead to spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual dryness and burnout is not because you're too busy. Spiritual dryness and spiritual burnout is when we're not abiding in the vine. See, Christ wants to wear us out for his name, to wring us out like that kitchen towel. When we're filled with the Spirit, toiling and working and ministering and caring, we ought to be at the end of our days spent with nothing left because rest is coming across the river. But friends, when we are feeling burned out, it's because we've, we've looked for a vine substitute. We've looked to money. We've looked to sex. We've looked to porn. We've looked to escape from responsibility. We've looked to nostalgic memories of our past. We've looked to our spouses. We've looked to our children. We've looked to our grandchildren. We've looked to friends. Friends, we've even looked to the pastor. We've even looked to the church. And we're looking into all these things in a way that only the vine, Jesus Christ, can give us. Friends, what is that vine substitute that right now the Lord's bringing to mind? That you've exchanged Jesus for something far less. Friends, being burned out and spiritually dull and miserable in the end is what always happens when we exchange someone or something else for the true vine, which is only Christ. If you're curious and you'd like to grow deeper in your knowledge of Christ and the Scriptures, apart from reading the Gospels, my number one go-to book, if you just want to marinate on Jesus... It's Mark Jones's book, Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. It is a rich buffet of wonderful meditations on Christ. Back to Matthew 28, 17. Here we see a mixture 
of authentic and acceptable worship and faith. And we also see those who have doubted. Somewhere their vision got blurred. So we started off the order of service this morning with Be Thou My Vision. We need that prayer and song in our lives every week, right? Friends, that can be true for us. We need to have that renewed and clear vision of our Lord. But if the Lord sees doubters on that mountain and he sees doubters even in this room, then how's he going to help us? How's he going to restore us and transform us and to bring us back to that sweet, restful place of abiding in the vine? How would Jesus respond on that strange day? He got up from the dead. They see him with their eyes, but not everybody is worshiping him. Well, friends, he does the same thing he's been doing ever since that first day. He reveals to doubters how glorious he is. And he reveals to all of us the authority, mission, and presence that he's promised to be with his people. If you're taking notes, here's the note-taking part of the sermon, if you haven't taken any already. One main idea, three sub-points. Here's your main idea. The grand purpose of our lives is to know King Jesus and make him known. There it is. The grand purpose of our lives is to know King Jesus and make him known. But why is that the grand purpose of our lives? Three sub-points. Point number one, because of the unrivaled authority of Jesus Christ because of the unrivaled authority of Jesus Christ. Number two, because of the universal scope of Jesus' mission. Because of the universal scope of Jesus' mission. And number three, because of the unwavering promise that emboldens us to remain faithful to Jesus. Because of the unwavering promise that emboldens us to remain faithful to Jesus. Let's look at that first point of the grounds of the reason for why King Jesus gets to call the shots for the grand purpose of our lives, of knowing him and making him known. Point number one, because of the unrivaled authority of Jesus Christ. Look at me at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The word authority here means power, dominion, or possessing the legal right and freedom to rule and do whatever you please. Jesus makes the claim that all, did you notice the word all? It's going to mention three times, clearly in your English translation, but four in the original. All, not some, not most, but all power, all dominion, and all freedom to possess all rights to claim something or someone as his own. Jesus says he possesses all of it in heaven where God is. And on earth where we live. All authority has been given to him. All authority has been given to Jesus. Friends, if Jesus claimed to have that kind of authority over the entire universe and everything exists, from whom did he receive that authority from? Well, friends, he received it from his Father, from God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had been painting this beautiful picture of the love relationship between the Father and the Son. Notice what he says in Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, did you hear what Jesus just said in that text? We cannot know God as Father unless we know Jesus as God's Son. Jesus is stating that he reveals the Father. He is God incarnate. And Jesus is stating that before he makes the universal claim of being Lord of heaven and earth, he was teaching the weary, the downtrodden, the discouraged, the doubting, the filthy, the dirty, the wretch, the wicked like us, that we can find rest only in him. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest for your souls. Friends, rest from what? I mean, is Jesus like a professional sleep study physician? I mean, one of the things about Fort Smith that just, we, we joke as staff all the time. Every time we see something being built, we're like, what do you think it is? It's a bank, it's a car wash, and it's a mattress store. So Fort Smith has got a lot of money, but you keep hiding it. Bring it to the church so we can build this church building. Uh, number two, cars are really dirty. And number three, people are just lacking sleep or they sleep too much. Again, it's, it's a joke, but I, I'm thinking 60% of the time I'm right. Is that what Jesus is saying? Come to me and I'll give you a mattress. Come to me. I'll give you a, a pill to fall asleep better. Friends, this is the context of salvation. Jesus is saying, come to me and I'll give you rest from working to earn your salvation. I'll give you rest from running exhaustively on the performance perfectionistic treadmill trying to gain favor or points with God. Rest from the hopelessness and hollowness of living life apart from this God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, throughout the Gospels, he has been putting this same message on repeat from the very beginning. What did the angel announce to Mary? They will call him Emmanuel, God with us, and what will he do? He will save his people from their sins. Matthew 9, verse 6, the scribes were offended because he had authority on earth to forgive sins. Matthew 10, he says, if you want to be my disciple, i got to be number one above your mama, your daddy, your kids, your grandkids, your job, your career, even your life, or you can't be my disciple. 
Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Jesus, when he was baptized, the Father declared over him that he was satisfied and pleased, not with us, but with his son, Matthew 3, 17. John the Baptist said that he was far superior than John or his ministry, so much that John said, I can't even hold your crocs, your sandals, the things on your feet I'm not even worthy to touch, Matthew 3, 11. And then at the outset of his ministry, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means when Jesus showed up in Galilee, it was not a mere man. It was a king, God's presence as a king in a man, announcing the time has been fulfilled. The new covenant is being inaugurated. Repent and believe in me. And then at the end of his sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, the people were utterly amazed by how he taught, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Friends, he possessed the power to deliver people who were oppressed by demons their whole life. Friends, he had the power to shut the mouth of demons with a word and tell them to leave a person alone. He was the only one known as the blind received their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Friends, he had authority to forgive sins and give sinners the ability to see God. God through Christ, controls the weather. He knows people's thoughts. He commands the dead to rise. Friends, even the scriptures tell us that all authority has been given to Jesus to judge the world. So much for a small view of Jesus. So much for a puny, cherry-on-top Christian life where I said that prayer, now give me what I want, God. Friends, if Jesus is not everything to us, he's nothing to us. He's not the cherry on top of anyone's ice cream. He's not a good luck charm. He's not the Easter bunny. He's not a fairy. He's God incarnate. And he's our savior. And he's our friend. This authority that Jesus possessed, the, the authority spoken of in the prophet Daniel, or spoken of and prophesied in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, of the son of man possessing a kingdom that was everlasting. So what does Jesus say to the crowd on that mountain mixed with worshipers and doubters? What does Jesus say to the congregation here mixed with worshipers and doubters? <laughs> to put it bluntly, verse 18 is saying this, Jesus is in charge. Not you. Not me. Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world, and he does not need our help. There is no vacancy in the Trinity. The triune God has it perfectly under control. In Jesus, all things hold together. Without Jesus, nothing that exists would exist. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He, friends, not the pastors, not the deacons, not the members either. He is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. I could drop dead this afternoon, and Jesus' kingdom and church will be just fine without me. And the same is true for any of us. He is Lord, he is king, he is boss, he reigns, he rules, he controls, he dictates, he determines, he appoints, he ordains, and he calls the shots on your life and mine. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So friends, if Jesus is number one, and we are his servants, we are his ambassadors, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, not to spread our fame, but his fame, then what does he what does he command? 
that we give our lives to. Point number two, because of the universal scope of Jesus' mission. Look at verses 19 to 20a. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Grammatically, there is one clear command with three participles, basically three verbal adjectives that define, describe, and clarify what the main thrust of the act of obedience is to be. The main command here from Jesus is make disciples. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. The word means to teach, to train. It's to do to others what Christ had done to them and in them and to carry on the mission of Jesus Christ on earth. These men were to follow Jesus and make fishers of men for Jesus. They were to plant and water, as Grant read earlier from 1 Corinthians 3, God's word, and God in his own time would cause the growth. They were to make disciples who make disciples. They were to invest, mentor, equip, and commission so that the mission continued on beyond their own life. Friends, discipling certainly involves instruction, but it also involves imitation and intimate relationships. You need, and I need, more than podcast. You and I need more than reading a book at a coffee shop all alone. We need more than listening to really good discussions on the internet waves. We need real flesh and blood Christians in our life, up in our grill, with us all the time, helping us follow Jesus. Even Jesus, before he said, go, earlier in his ministry in Mark 3, it says he chose those whom he desired, and listen to this, verse 14 of Mark 3, that they might be with him, and then he might send them out to preach. Friends, some things are truly better caught than taught, aren't they? That's why Jesus said we should be very careful about the teachers, the preachers, and role models we have in our life. Jesus said in Luke 6, 39 to 40, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained, the word literally means fully discipled, will be like his teacher. That's why two of the most significant things you should look for and pray for in discernment on which church you will join is this. Look at their doctrine, what they believe and what they teach, and look at their leadership, who they follow. Look at their life. Look at their doctrine. Look at their example. Look at their integrity. Look at their discipleship plan and direction and convictions for shepherding that congregation to the next generation. Beloved, we become like who we listen to and who we learn from. We become like who we listen to and who we learn from. The question is this. Does Jesus approve of those we follow? Does Jesus approve of those we learn from and listen to? You and I will know that by asking, do they lead us to the Jesus of the Bible to obey the Jesus of the Bible? Now, what does making disciples consist of? What does this universal mission look like from Jesus who possesses universal authority? Here's the three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. First, he says going. The word can literally be emphasized as go out or go forth. 
and make disciples. The idea here is that making disciples involves outward facing and one another oriented. In other words, the mission Jesus gave his 11 disciples and the church in the years and generations to come, it requires intentionality, active pursuit, deliberate effort to be made by moving towards people, not away from them. Moving towards people outside of our me, myself, and I bubbles. But before we can go for Jesus, we have to bow to Jesus. Submission to Jesus is the prerequisite for obedience to Jesus. Treasuring Christ is the engine and the fuel for serving King Jesus. Friends, serving Jesus is both a command to obey, but a delight and a privilege. It is a privilege to preach God's word. It's not a right. It is a privilege to be a member of his body. We don't deserve it. It is a privilege to serve in childcare. It is a privilege to serve on the music team. It is a privilege to serve on the sound team. It is a privilege to cut the grass, change the light bulbs, change diapers. It is a privilege to put together services. It is a privilege to print out copies of things needed for other people in the church. It is a privilege to go visit that member or that couple in their home. It is a privilege. You know why? It's a privilege to be called servants of the king. And whatever task he gives us, no matter how small or menial we think they are, it's a big deal to Jesus. And it should be a big deal to us. You see, a disciple-making church will not only care about its own, but it will care about the nations too. In a disciple-making church, there will be those who sin, the vast majority, and those who go to the unreached around the world. That's why Jesus said go, not just your neighborhood and local community, but to the nation, people groups, language groups that have never heard or been engaged with the gospel. Friends, there's only two different types of people in God's kingdom. We're either senders or goers. But if we're neither, we're just disobeyers. Jesus gave us the great commission, not the great suggestion. Eternity is before us. We don't want to waste time. Making disciples, listen to this, making disciples of Jesus and taking this commission seriously, locally and abroad, will draw the line. It will reveal true Christians from counterfeit Christians. True and healthy churches and those who are giving Jesus a bad name. The second participle defining and describing what making disciples is like is baptizing. Making disciples of Jesus consists of immersing or baptizing into water. New converts who show the credible fruits of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. And according to Christ, we are to baptize them in the name of the triune God. Our one God revealed in three distinct persons, co-eternal and co-equal, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Thus, baptism announces a variety of things. Baptism is a Christian's public announcement of their new identity in Christ's kingdom. A baptism does not save anyone or wash away their sins, but baptism depicts visually what Christ has done in them and through the gospel. But baptism is also the initiation rite or the front door into church membership into Christ's body they visibly on earth. It is an individual's public act to follow Jesus and declare that he is Lord of their life, but it is also a church's act of affirming that person's profession of faith as credible 
Who were those people? The ecclesia, the church, those who gather in his name. You can see that pattern throughout the book of Acts, the New Testament epistles, and church history. The third participle that would characterize discipling is teaching. Look at verse 20a, teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Friends, just to make it really clear here, discipling requires teaching. It requires instruction. It involves someone speaking the truth of God's word and others listening with the intent to learn and receive it. Preaching sermons, teaching Bible studies, writing Bible-based curriculum for young kids and adults, writing theology books, Christian living books, printing and passing out gospel tracts, how we pray, what we pray, and how those line up in praying scripture, even down to the songs we sing in corporate worship, they are all forms of teaching us God's life-giving word. Friends, Jesus did not say the Great Commission was simply making sermon factories, writing curriculums, and turning people into Bible study eggheads. No, Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The word observe means guard or protect, which is modified by the word command. In other words, if we're simply teaching one another biblical truths, we hear good sermons, we read good books, we have good discussions, but we don't apply what we learn to our life, that's not the Great Commission. That's a half-baked cake. We listen, we learn, and we teach, but we must receive, submit, and obey to actually carry out the Great Commission. CCBC, pray that we would preach and teach faithfully, but that we would also obey what we learn. Rich, faithful, expositional sermons must be obeyed and applied, not merely listened to. An obedient Christian is a faithful sermon applied. An obedient Christian is a faithful sermon applied. Spiritual maturity does not happen by listening to sermons. It begins there, but it starts as soon as we leave these doors. Otherwise, we'll be like the fool in the ancient proverb, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. But friends, these young men, former tax collectors, fishermen, ragged tagged zealots, self-righteous, fighting and bickering, doubtful, these were the men that Jesus would use to turn the world upside down. These sinful in need of God's mercy daily men were the ones that Jesus was going to lay the foundation for for his church. This was a mission he gave those disciples that would extend to his church throughout all generations until the consummation of all things at the second coming, which leads to point number three, because of the unwavering promise that emboldens us to remain faithful to Jesus. Look at the final words of verse 20. Behold, in other words, listen up, take heart, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age points to the final consummation and completion of the church age. Uh, what does Jesus mean here? That he would be with them always, even till then? I mean, didn't Jesus, after 40 days, ascend back into heaven in Acts chapter 1? Well, yeah, he did. He said, in just a few days, I will send the helper, the paraclete, the comforter, the third person of the triune God to dwell in all of you who trusted me. And that's the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
It's the day where we see God's spirit poured out like fire and they indwell those first early followers of Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Christ has been indwelt by and sealed by and is being led by and filled by and secured by the Spirit. The Spirit from our Father, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of the living God. Christ is with us, not in some kind of placebo effect way. He's with us in this gathering this morning. When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, his church. Members of CCBC, how do we evaluate whether or not we are being faithful to this task? It's a good question, right? How do we evaluate if any church being faithful to this task? I'll give you four evaluation thoughts very quickly. Number one, the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Everything we do here at CCBC must be governed, sifted, supported, and undergirded by Scripture, whether through precepts and commands or prudential applications from Scripture. We want to do everything Jesus commanded us to obey. The authority of Scripture. Number two, decisionism versus making disciples. Decisionism versus making disciples. Are we more focused on getting people to make a decision for Christ or are we helping believers grow deep in their walks with Christ? Yes, evangelism requires making a decision to follow Jesus, but the thrust of this text is making disciples, not getting decisions. It's seeing true Christians mature and grow in their faith. It is not an emphasis in a preoccupation with getting people to raise their hand, repeat a prayer, walk down an aisle, be dunked in the baptism waters very quickly, and they just simply sign a card saying they don't want to go to hell but want to go to heaven. Friends, churches that focus more on decisions tend to be a mile wide but an inch deep. But churches that truly make disciples tend to see Christians grow, and God determines the numerical growth. We plant, we water, but he causes the growth. Number three, evangelistic and outward oriented. Evangelistic and outward oriented. Are we praying for unbelievers to be saved? Are we praying for the nations and people groups that have little to no access to the gospel? Are members in our church weekly sharing the gospel and getting into conversations about Christ with unbelievers? Friends, pray that we would be evangelistic and outward facing. And then number four, a praying church. A praying church. Leonard Ravenhill once said, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. We should always be praying for greater manifestations of the spirit of the living God to be poured out upon us individually and as a church. J.I. Packer once said, a revived church is full of the life, joy, and power of the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit's coming, fellowship with Christ is brought right to the center of our worship and devotion. The glorified Christ is shown, known, loved, served, and exalted. Love and generosity, unity and joy, assurance and boldness, a spirit of praise and prayer, and a passion to reach out to win others are re reoccurring marks of a people experiencing revival. Brothers, earlier this week, brothers and sisters, I sent out a text to about 25 members of our church telling them to read Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and tell me what they thought were the marks of a faithful church, faithful to this mission, and marks of maybe a church failing at this. 
well, I don't have 30 more minutes to share all those comments. But within those comments, I didn't ask for this, but there were a couple of members that said specific ways that they see God's grace working in the lives of our church and fulfilling various aspects of these commands. I wanted to read a few to you just to encourage you. Here's what one member said. Blake, I've been thinking a lot lately about how our church is evangelizing and discipling. Just like the disciples in verse 16, it all begins with the worship of Jesus that we encounter in the gathered body at CCBC in the prayers, hymns, and songs, Bible readings and comments, and the truth-packed sermons. We are being discipled and discipling each other as we join in speaking and singing and hearing all of the intentionally chosen words of truth. When we stand and speak our church covenant to God and each other, we are promising to follow God and his commandments, first with each other and then moving outward. We commit ourselves to praying for each other and all of the leadership. We're even given specific things to pray for on a regular basis, which is modeled from the pulpit. Bible-based prayers are modeled every time we meet. We are encouraged to read books on prayer and study them with each other and given opportunities to pray out loud during evening services. We pray for our church to evangelize and disciple, which causes us to boldly do it in the power of the Spirit. We are reminded of what we believe in the creeds we repeat together. Evangelism is modeled in leadership and is strongly encouraged to the church. The Wednesday evening teachings are drenched with God's Word and how it applies to our lives. Serving and caring for others with great humility is modeled by all the elders and deacons, and we are encouraged to get deeply involved in the lives of each other. The sovereignty of God and his goodness are held high. The accountability of where we are spiritually and the encouragement to grow more and more in our love for God and each other causes us to hunger and thirst to know God and his word more so that we can speak it to all those we meet. It all mixes us together and points to Jesus Christ and makes us so thankful for our salvation, so full of joy in him that we want others to know him and the meaning of his name and to believe him and worship him and to be discipled and experience his goodness as they learn to trust and obey Christ. All those words to say that the Great Commission is being modeled before us and we are being discipled and held accountable to participate in it. That is how churches do it right. If all those things that I have listed are not being done, then churches may be getting it wrong, especially if they are depending on programs instead of being fully devoted to loving, trusting, and obeying God and his word. Another member said this, and I'll move on. Brother Blake, I am thankful for the ways that I see CCBC being a faithful, great commission church. Praise God. I think that a faithful church will focus on discipling its members, wanting to see them grow not only in their love of Christ, but also their desire to know and obey his word where everything is pointed back to scripture and the gospel. I think this would be seen in how the Sunday morning services are ran, not as a form of entertainment or as a motivational pep talk, but instead as an entire service that equips the listeners to fight the spiritual battles encountered throughout the Christian life, helping them to grow in their obedience and love for Christ. I think this is also seen in how the members care for one another. A faithful discipling church would also offer opportunities throughout the week for growth, Bible studies, book studies, the church would encourage and equip its members to interact with one another personally in small groups and in one another fellowship and discipling. Also, a super bonus of discipleship that I enjoy from being a member here are the message that we receive from the pulpit containing wonderful resources to help us grow. Bible verses, quotes, articles, videos, etc. I have loved all the messages from the Psalms recently, and I remember loving last summer's Psalms messages too. So wonderful and so powerful. I love the book of Psalms, and I love the way they're taught from the pulpit to apply its truth to our lives. It'd be so awesome if one day we can make an option on the podcast app or the CCB website, like Grace to You does with the messages and putting them all together. It would be great to go back through all the messages in the Psalms all grouped together to go back and listen as a series. Praise God. 
Whatever good that's happened in this church is because of his grace. There was a time we were not. And he has brought us this far. Friends, the success of the Great Commission does not rely ultimately on us, but on Christ over us, Christ with us, and Christ in us, who is always for us. Friends, we fight against sin. We stand firm against the evil one. We persevere in the hard times. We worship. We work hard. We serve humbly. We preach. We teach. We shepherd. We save money. We give money. We plan for the future and think about the building of reaching the next generation. And beloved, we do all this not from a place of doubt, but of confidence. Jesus is Lord. He's building his church. Oh, beloved, Because Jesus is Lord and he has been so good to us, even when we've doubted him, why wouldn't we obey this good master? Jesus is building his church. And regardless if CCBC exists for 10 more years or 10 more decades, Jesus wins. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for being a God who cares and knows so much that you show mercy to us when we doubt your integrity, we doubt your power, we doubt your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would give us a clearer vision of our Lord Jesus. He's our true vine. He is the fountain of living waters. And so we pray that you would cause us all to drink deeply from that well and that we would all help one another learn what it means to abide in Christ, who is the true vine, knowing that whatever you command us to do, whether it looks small to us or big, is a big deal to you. Lord, cause us to continue to walk by faith, not by sight, and be the disciple-making church you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.